Father, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that we see your evidence of your goodness in, in the world that you've made. And even though it has fallen, even though it's corrupt, Lord, corrupted by sin, Lord, we still, still see the evidences of your goodness. We thank you that you're a good God who created things good and, 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 and that, that when, when sin occurred, Lord, that you didn't just leave us to our, to our fate, to our, to our death, both physically and spiritually, Lord, but you enacted your plan of redemption. Lord, you, you made a promise from the instant of the very first sin. You made the very first promise of the Savior to come. Lord, the one who would conquer sin and death on our behalf to, to take away the fear of death for us so that we would never have to face the second death. And Father, we thank you that you've revealed this to us through the, the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through, Lord, your Scripture so that we can have that, that hope, Lord, in the face of, of our own mortality, God that we can have that hope and that truth that, that, that grounds us, Lord, and that is, a, is also a beacon to those who, who need that hope in, in a, a needy world. So we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, Lord. We thank you for your scriptures that, that, that teach about these things and that would, that would make us adequate and equipped for every good work. And we just thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're talking about eschatology. That's what we started this last, this new unit, this last unit on, on kind of an overview of systematic theology that I've been teaching on for years here uh, as far as during Sunday school class. So we talked about eschatology is a fancy word for meaning doctrine of the last things, right? Eschatology is just, it's a fancy way of saying doctrine of the last things, the things that are still to come in the future that have been promised and described by the word of God. And there's two different aspects of eschatology. The, the aspect that most people think of when it comes to eschatology is this, uh, the, the future of the entire universe, right? The second coming of Christ, the millennium, the final judgment, right? The new heavens, new earth. Those are things that, that people often think of primarily of eschatology and they are part of eschatology, and they are taught in the scriptures. But the scriptures also teach, and I would say just as much or maybe even more, the aspect of our personal eschatology, right? Of, of what does it mean that we are, what are we personally going to face of what is to come? And, and what is our future as, as individuals? And that's an important worldview issue. Every person has to have some answer to the question, what happens when we die? Now, they, they might have not have a well-formed answer. They may not have, and their answer may be, I just don't want to think about that. But, but it's something that you can't escape having to face that question. And every worldview has to have some sort of answer for that, 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 that question. Um, and so before, now before we start talking about what happens after, that before we think about what happens after we die, the scripture actually is even more focused on the fact that we die. That, that's actually really important. This idea of, of death, of physical death, is, is not something that the scriptures skirt around or avoid. It is front and center in the biblical worldview that, uh, that, that this reality of death. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. It is something of that the, the scripture finds important and that we would want to understand biblically as well. So let's talk about death. And specifically, we're talking about physical, physical death. So the reality of death. We're saying that uh, physical death, 
First of all, physical death is inevitable. So turn to Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then it says, comparing that, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So just as sure, he's saying, just as sure as we know these things, that, that we will die and face judgment, that's as sure as we know of Christ's return. So he's, he is, the author of Hebrews is stating this as an undeniable fact, this undeniable fact for every person has to face the inevitability of death. We also see that as implications through, through also the rest of the New Testament, right? 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to talk about later. Paul's going to talk that death is de- a defeated enemy. And yet despite all the hope that Paul gives when considering how, how Christ has, has really taken the sting out of death, Paul gives no suggestion that we don't have to face death. That the aspect that the death is defeated is not that we don't have to face death, but that the, the consequences of death are no longer under the curse, right? But this idea that death happens is still, even in the most hopeful passages, is, it's, it's a reality for every believer, right? I mean, even starting from the very, for every person, for starting from the very beginning of Genesis, right? You start seeing, you know, from after... Um, Adam, you start seeing these generations, and, and I think it's, it's Adam, is it seven? I, think, I didn't write that down in my notes, but, um, oh, uh, Genesis 5, right? Genesis 5, you see this, the genealogy, and it talks about, um, you know, Adam, and then uh, Verse four says, the days of Adam, uh, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived uh, after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, after the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And then, and then we have after en- we have um, Enosh and Enosh talks about Enosh. And then after 905 years and he died. And it goes over and over and over in this emphasis from the very beginning of the Bible that every single person, and they may have lived a lot longer, but there's this inevitability of, of death, right? And so that death is inevitable. And so that we see that the scriptures say that, that in that way that we would anticipate and, and face and understand the reality of death. Right? We see that, that Paul sets his own example in this. We're going to look at Philippians 1 later, but turn to 2 Corinthians 5 real quick. Not Chronicles, Corinthians. I'm like, that does not look right. All right, 2 Corinthians yeah, chapter 5. So Paul is, is speaking to the Corinthian church, but he's speaking in a first-person plural that can, he's almost inviting them to consider these things with him. And what he says is, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put, our heavenly dwelling, put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
He who has prepared us, this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we see this example of Paul and what he's asking the Corinthians is to consider along with him this inevitability, but also the truth and the anticipation of what death biblically means. He's, th- he's inviting them to think biblically about death. You see, I have two points there, that, that death is inevitable and death should be anticipated, should be thought about, should be considered biblically. And almost everyone, when push comes to shove, at least intellectually, would agree with number one, right? Um, I, I was reading a little bit and, and prepping for this. I guess the, the only people that probably would blatantly disagree with number one, that death is, death is inevitable, is Christian science. People, I'm, not, I'm not as familiar with those in Christian science, but I guess they, uh, they, they question the reality of sickness and death. Um, they had some problems when their founder, Mary Baker Eddy, actually died. Uh, but there's, there, there's some aspects there. But, but most people understand and at least give mental assent that death, death is inevitable, right? They, but the same point, but the, the, a number two, number two is not agreed on by everyone, right? In fact, I would say that what Paul is doing in the scriptures here of saying, as Christians, we should think about death. We should consider death. We should anticipate death. That is not a, a common within the culture, right? How, how, does, how does our culture deal with the idea of thinking about or anticipating death? You're morbid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost taboo some, in, some, in some ways, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's sometimes going to great lengths to avoid talking about it, mm. Right? There, there's, there's, you know, in, in trying to, to not talk about it, trying to use euphemisms to not really think about exactly, you know, what's going on, um, not, to, not to get down on, on funeral homes, uh, but, you know, there's the idea of, of making up the body to do it as, pos- as much as possible to make them look like they're not dead, right? Um, which isn't possible, right, Craig? But, but it, th- that's the goal. Is that there's this, this almost this mental barrier there, Right? Um, to the fact where some people don't even make plans for their own death because they don't want to think about their own death. And, that, and that's very different than the Christian worldview. That, that kind of thinking about death, which is maybe not everyone in the culture, but very predominant in the culture, is actually very different than the Christian worldview. Where, where Paul says that the Christian worldview would say that, that death is not a shock and not a surprise because we recognize that part of the fall and part of what Jesus came to save us from is from being under that curse of death. Not that we wouldn't die, but that it removes the sting of that. And so, so we are always under the shadow of death. As, as the psalmist says, you know, that, that he is, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's, that's, that's life, right? I remember sophomore year poetry class, right? And they, they put us... Uh, they, they put two different poems in front of us. And one was a cute little rhyming poem. And one was something that didn't rhyme at all. And it's about a, a baby that's headed to death. And they said, like, which one is better poetry? I'm like, the rhyming one, because it sounds good, right? Like, no, it's this one, because think about all the metaphors. And that as soon as you 
are born, you're starting to die. I'm like, well, I like the rhyming one. But there, but there is something in that metaphor, right? That even that, that, that's recognized that we are all under the shadow, the shadow of death. And so we want to we want to think about this. We want to think biblically about this. We want to think deeply about this to be, to be grounded. Because Paul says that for, as a Christian, that we don't need to avoid these truths. In, fa- in fact, these truths are given to us for our edification, for our good, for to, so that we would have hope and joy and, 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 and that, that the world does not have. And so let's think about the nature of death here. Let's think about, first of all, just what is death, right? How do we define death. And, and in, in a way, what I wanted, I'm trying to do, what I want to do here is, we've talked before, actually, before that, of the difficulty of words, right? We're using one word, death. I think it's the opposite of life. Okay. There's yes. No life. Yes. No breath. Yes. There's nothing. And in fact, that is, that is very biblical in the way that it's described, right? uses death in at least, probably more ways if you really think about it, but at least two different ways you can think about it, right? There's a, there's a way that we're talking, that the Bible talks about death. When you're t- saying death is without life, I would say that fits with both of these, but there's a way that de- death is without this, this breath, this physical life, right? So there's death, there's a physical death, That's spoke about, and that's where we're going to look at that. That's described that, that there is a that, that there's a loss of, of breath, of, of soul, of spirit, right? That's kind of be talked about. But there's also what is a, a spiritual death that's that's spoken about. Same word. It's not different Greek words or Hebrew words. Same word, but but depending on the context, you see it in in different ways. But, uh, but, but Tony's right there. And this, and this, what, what I want to focus on, really, what we're focusing on here for the most part is physical death. We're going to talk about a little bit about spiritual death, and there'll be more in weeks to come. <clears throat> but this, this physical death, we're, we're talking about, I mean, the, the best definition of it is a separation of the inner man from the outer man, right? That there's a separation between the inner man and the outer man. And I mean, my outer man is the physical part of us, right? The part of us that's physical and tangible. But the Bible teaches us that we are a, uh, there's a fancy term, a psychosomatic unity, right? That there is a, a non-physical part of us that's also just as much of us. But at the same point, the physical part of us also makes us us as well. God created us both body, material, and immaterial, soul, spirit, right? And, and both of them make us us to the very fact that, that, and so death is a temporary separation of that unity, of that unity of material and immaterial. And, and I say it's temporary because we see that one of the most important doctrines in the Bible is that, that, that we are meant to be both physical and, and non-physical, material and, non, and immaterial, because that's the importance of, of, of 1 Corinthians 15, of that there is going to be a resurrection, that our physical bodies will be resurrected, that we are not just floating spirits um, forever. And so... So, so there's, and, and there's, so the separation is used in different terms. Let's, let's, uh, um, and, and, and really whether you, you, uh, would, would hold a, a, uh, a, a, um, a, a bichotomous view or a trichotomous view and the idea of whether you see just really a simple, just two part of man, physical, 
uh, and non-physical or whether like our brother Ron here, you see more of a trichotomous or a multiple view. Really, it's the same thing because we would agree on this point that, that those, whether it's multiple parts of us that make up that immaterial or one same, similar terms used for the same part, what, those parts that are immaterial are separated from the physical right at death. And so let's turn to John real quick, John 13. And as Tony said, you know, she's thought of death as the opposite of life. Um, and, and, and I think that this is, that's, that's how, how, how Jesus speaks uh, in way here, right? So Peter says to him, Lord, um, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So that there's a, a laying down, a loss of life, right? That's the, the kind of term that would be, that, that's used here. Right, um, and, um, and 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 keep in mind there. And I'm going to say something on that when I want to compare it to the next next word. So look at Matthew 10 as well. Then, so there's a loss of of, of life, a separation of life. Now it's interesting that John would also use that imagery as a spiritual as well. That there's spiritual death and spiritual life, but obviously there he's talking about physical life and physical death. Um, John 10 or Matthew 10. 28, where Jesus says, uh, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So the body is killed, but not the soul, right? The body is killed, but not the soul. Um, And um, where am I? Okay, and, and so and, and I did at one point, I was just studying this and just as a side note, when I keep saying you have to be careful and, and in fact, if, if you go to my Wednesday class that we're gonna talk about that Wednesday, you have to be careful of word studies, you know, when you say, okay, I'm gonna look up every time this word is used. So this word soul here is actually, is the same word that is used for life in, um, in, the, in the last verse in John 13, but it's also a word that's used for people in general, like in Romans 13, that every person is subject to governing authorities. It's every, every life, every soul. So you're seeing that the same words are used in different ways. So you always have to be careful with that. But obviously what we're talking about, when he's talking about life and soul used in a similar way, is talking about this, 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 um, uh, this, 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 it's a similar word used in different ways, right? You're talking about losing physical life but now we're talking about being a separating of that, that soul from, from the body. You know, different. So, and then it gets even more, you know, more when you look at um, uh, James. Well, Ecclesiastes is similar, but since we're in the New Testament, turn over to James. Okay. Yeah. I'm a little confused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so the soul in verse 28, you said you could think of it as life? Well, it's the same word. But, but the context, right? So the context, that's why I'm saying you have to be careful sometimes when you, when you do word studies because you could, start to get, you could start to actually put theology in that's not meant to be there, right? Because you would say, um, you know, in, in John, right? In John, John uses that word often to mean physical life. That, that, that's your physical life is your soul. Your soul is your physical life. 
But you look at Matthew's using it here, and Matthew's saying that the body and the soul are different, that the physical body and the soul are two different things. Same Greek word, but two authors using it two very different ways. And that's why context is so important. And also, um, I've said before, and, and one of my professors recently, and I just love the, the phrase that uh, he always keeps in mind that words have friends. <laughs> and I just, I love that. The idea of, if he's going to say um, body and, it's, it's suke or psyche, right, right? Body and psyche. Obviously, he's not talking about physical life. Because of the, the friends those words have in that situation, it, it, it helps you understand the definition of that, right? Or if you say loss of, well, loss of indicates that you're talking about the physical aspect of that. In the same way I've done before, I've used the word sell before, right? When you, depending on how you fill in the blank, right, whether it's before or after, it changes the definition of that word sell, right? If you put in phone, one word, that word, because of its friends, changes the definitions versus biological. Change the definitions because of the friends that those word, that word has, right? Versus um, prison. Words have friends. De- huh? Or cell membrane. Yeah. So, so you're looking at, um, the, 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 depending on the friends that the word has, we, it's the same thing. English is the same thing in, in Greek and same thing in Hebrew is that depending on the friends the word has, both the words that are around it and sometimes, a lot of times, prepositions that are with it or others, it, it will, those help to define it. And so that's why I'm saying it was just, this has less to do with, the, with our subject here. Just one caution I just noticed. I'm like, oh, that's really, I, I just hadn't noticed that before of saying John is specifically using this word to mean the physical life. Your loss of physical, you know, of, of your physical life, not your spiritual life. You know, or physical death, not spiritual death. Yeah. And then Matthew's saying, oh, no, no. Matthew's is, is, is this, as is, is the, is the, is the, is the non-physical, right? It's just, it's just an interest, it was just an interesting way, use of words. I go, well, that's really funny. So, anyway, I just, it's, it's kind of a rabbit trail, I know. But it's just, I, I find it interesting. I think it's one of those things that, that for me, I start going, ooh, well, maybe. And I go, wait a minute. That's not... What I'm trying to put theologically together here is not what's really happening. It may really sound really good of, well, maybe this links to this, links to this. It's almost like the, those movies you see that we were watching one last night with the kids on um, like a cartoon where the detective's up there and he's got like all the red string and he's trying to put the big puzzle together and this guy's going and just basically the whole board is just full of you know, red, red string because it's just a big mess. And, and, you can, and, 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 and that's not what's going on here. What's going on is you have an author's that, that would use the words just in different contexts. And we do the same thing in English. And so, um, so a little bit of rabbit trail. <laughs> uh, but look over at James. I, I said, you're probably already there. I, I didn't turn because I was having fun talking about linguistics. Um, James chapter two. Now here's, here's interesting. So, so Matthew talks about this physical death as a separation of body and soul. Uh, and then James talks about it in a very similar way, a separation of body and spirit. So the, uh, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So again, whether you're, you, you hold to, to um, just, just a two part of, of man or three parts, really the idea is that, that, that this death is a separation of the physical from the, from the, the non-physical, whether that, that body and whether soul and spirit are two different things or two different words for the same thing, that's what that's what's being addressed here is a separation for the physical and the non-physical. And so what we see that the implication of this 
is that death is not the end of existence, right? Death is not the end in the sense of life and death is not, life is existence and death is non-existence. Death is simply a transition into a different mode of existence. There is still us that exists, but in a different mode. Now, there is a, a second death, a spiritual death that's referred to also in scripture, where is physical death is the separation of the inner and outer person. Spiritual death is the separation of the whole person from God, right? We see that, that there's an aspect of that currently. Ephesians 2 talks about that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were unable to respond to God spiritually, so we're separated. But we see that most importantly, there is in Revelation 21, a second death, and a, which is after physical death and a final separation of, of those who have not repented um, from God. So I don't want to go too much into that because Elias is going to be talking about the intermediate state in the coming, in the coming weeks here. And so I don't want to go too much into that, but that's there's the, the, just that distinction. So... Is everyone tracking so far? Again, this is probably not, nothing groundbreaking. There's no one here that said, I had never realized that this is what death is. But just, just getting all on the same page, just thinking, what is, how does the Bible define what death is? And, and more importantly than just, just base definitions, there are two important aspects to death I think the Bible would emphasize that, that we need to keep in balance when we think about death. There's two things. One, that physical death is an enemy we're to think of physical death as an enemy, but we're also to think of physical death as a conquered enemy. And we want to hold them both in balance because the, the Bible holds them both in balance. That physical death is to be treated as an enemy, but to be treated as a conquered enemy. So let's think about this question here first. Is physical death natural or unnatural? In a way you would say natural. Why, why would you say natural? Since the fall. Since, there we go. Craig's there. Yes. So original, so since the fall, it is natural as part that everyone experiences. But when we think about it, that, that, that there, there was always the threat of death, right? Genesis said, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. There's the threat of death, but the existence of death was not part of God's good creation, it, it, it came with sin. In fact, we see that it's not the, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're doing a lot of jumping around today. Um, there's two, there's a couple passages we're going to spend, first, uh, a couple passages we'll spend, you know, more time in. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is a big one. Um, <clears throat> All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 21. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, there's other passages that talk about the consequences of sin being death, but usually that's spiritual death, right? So when Romans says, the wages of sin is death, most likely from the context, he's talking about spiritual death there, right? He's talking about this separation from God. So we have to be careful on proof texting. But if you think of the context of 1 Corinthians 15, what is the context of this chapter? You might even have a, a, a nice little title to help you out. What's the title? Resurrection. resurrection. Resurrection spiritually or resurrection physically? Okay. Did, were the, as we think about this, the, the Corinthians were not doubting that when you die, you go to be with Christ. 
They were not doubt. They they were not believing that death is the end, and you go, and there's nothing more. They were not uh, atheists in a way, in, in that kind of idea. They believed, yes, when you die, you go be with Christ. But it seems like that they did not believe necessarily that the bo- your body physically raised. That there was this 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 physical. So, so physical resurrection. So he's talking here not just about spiritual death, but in the sense of a physical resurrection, talking about physical death. So that's the context here. We're talking about physical death. So unlike Romans 3, he's, he's contrasting this death with this physical resurrection. And now the point of this passage is not that death came through sin. The point of this passage is the importance of the resurrection. But he's building as an important part of his logic this, he's almost saying we should all agree upon this understanding of the Bible. So it's not the point of the passage, but an important part of Paul's logic of how to understand the Bible. That the way that Paul says that we need to understand the Bible is that death came through sin. That death was not part of God's creation. It was not part, a natural part of God's creation. It came as a result of sin. So the implication would be that humans were originally created with the possibility of living forever. It was with the possibility of that. They were not, in, we're not inherently immortal, right? We're not immortal by our nature. Right, but um, but possible by the way that God created. And I think that 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 there's that it rings somewhat with 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 some. We, you know, we talk about evidences and desires and things that that reflect still that image of God and that that desire for immortality, that desire for something beyond death. Right, that desire of of I was you know the the story is several years ago when Larry King passed away. And, and, and it was kind of a big joke that, you know, he was, I think he, he was either frozen or his head was frozen or something. He had cryogenically frozen so that he could be revived one day when science was, you know, when science was, you know, figured out enough that, that they could bring back Larry King and he could have his uh, talk show again, right? There's something in us that says, this is unnatural. There's something in us that says that, 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 that there should be a way beyond this. Yeah. The death is unnatural. <laughs> I would say the freezing of the head is also, um, but, but, but there's this, there's this desire. I mean, there's a thing of, uh, I, I think all the rage, and, and I'm not a, um, a big tech, tech follower of all the, the, the latest trends and things, and, um, but you know, I, 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 you know, I hear things and, and read little things, and, and, and you, know, I, you know, the big thing, I guess, and a lot of the, the rich tech billionaires or whatever is that that there's real you know big dietary and other things and, and a lot of the research into life extension kind of type type things of this idea of you know what well we've been able to program into these things can we just program our bodies to be able to extend our life you know potentially forever there's this desire for that right because there's something in us that understands that that death is unnatural that death is not natural for humanity, it's unnatural. It's, death is from the fall. Death is foreign. Death is hostile. To use Paul's word, death is an enemy. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is, that, that's Paul's word. So when we say that death is unnatural, there's something wrong here. That death is an enemy. This is not, you don't have faith. This is not, oh, you're not trusting God. This is Paul's language. Yeah. I would also say that like, when, when our loved ones die, that grief we experience, 
in yeah. the testament to the fact that we weren't meant to be separated yes. from each other like that. Yeah. That there's something that's unnatural, that's, that's wrong, that, that, is, that is hostile to God's good creation in what, in what has occurred. Yeah. Um, and interesting here, we would think it's an enemy of who? I, at least for me, I read this verse, it goes, my enemy, because I'm the one facing death, and I'm experiencing death when friends and loved ones die. But that's not the context of the verse. I, I, that's probably true. It's our enemy. But look at the context of this verse here. Go back to verse 25. For he, Christ, must reign until he, Christ, has put all his, who's his? Christ's enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Whose enemy? Christ. Right? So, so this is, so we're seeing that, that God, is, that, 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 that death is not just our enemy because we have to face it. Death is an enemy of God. Of, of God and the good creation that God has made. I mean, think about it. God is the giver of life. We see throughout Scripture, starting in Genesis 9, that God takes seriously those who would take another life. Genesis 9, 6, those who shed blood, their blood shall be shed. It's the institution, God instituted government. The understanding of Genesis 9, 6 is the institution of human government. Government, we see the first, that's why, because using the use of the sword. Government was instituted with the, with the idea to protect life, right? God sent his son so we would have eternal life. <clears throat> so we see that, that, that death is, it's not unspiritual to look at death and, and understand it as something that's unnatural and an enemy. In fact, turn to John 11 real quick. And I, I, just, I just love this passage. I mean, again, a lot of this probably is not new or unfamiliar to you guys, but that we would all just be regrounded in these truths to, to give us hope and comfort. Um, but I, I just love the, this passage as it talks about the Savior, right? And, and, it, and it talks about Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus. And we know that Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus because he purposely delayed earlier out of his love for them of going so that the disciples would see the glory of God. He knew what was going to happen. And he comes and, and, and everyone's weeping. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping and all the Jews who had come also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see and then we have that verse, Jesus wept. So we, we, have, we ask the question, why did Jesus weep? Why was, in, in, in verse 33, he so moved? Right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't just the fact that Lazarus had died. I mean, he, he knew that Lazarus was going to be raised, risen from the dead. But there was this, this aspect of what death represents and what death is doing to Mary, to those there, that, that, that death is an enemy. Right, that he was moved at that, 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 that the effects of death. Um, so, so the implications of this, because we got I want to, I want to. Oh, my clock's gone. Um, so, so here's here's the implication. There's a wrong view. For some, would say it's a lack of faith who, for those who mourn deeply and are affected by death. That is a unbiblical view. First of all, we see that Jesus himself didn't exemplify that view. 
and it's not just Jesus. We don't have time, but in Acts 8.2, we see that they greatly mourned over the death of Stephen. Did they believe Stephen was going to heaven? Of course they did. Stephen saw Jesus in heaven, sitting at, sitting at the right hand of God. I mean, he, he of course so. Huh? He's halfway there. He's halfway there. And yet they greatly mourned. The Ephesians elders mourned over Paul. King David mourned over Jonathan. It is right to be affected by death. Death is an enemy. It is right to grieve. It is right to weep. It is, it is a godly and biblical reaction. And it is right to do that alongside people who do that, to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. So we see that, that, that it's right to say that death is wrong. Death is unnatural. Death is an enemy. That's, that's the one hand we hold on to. On the other hand, we, we see that physical death is a conquered enemy. It's a conquered enemy. Back in, uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Should have had you keep your finger there or something, right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15. But this time, verse 54, as it goes farther along, when Paul says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So, so death no longer functions as an enemy. It is our enemy, but it's lost its, its power, its curse. It's lost its ability to be feared of. It's a, sting, it's, a, it's a stingless insect. It's an insect who's lost its stinger. It's an animal who's lost its teeth. It's a cat who's lost its claws, right? You, know, you ever have a cat that's been declawed? And it's like, ah, oh, that's so cute, right? It wouldn't be so cute if it had its claws, right? But it's, 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 it's lost anything that makes it fearsome. It's been, it's been taken away. Why? Well, we see that, that there is, it's why? Because of what Christ has done. And if you're in 1 Corinthians, flip over a couple of books of Philippians 1. This is another passage that, that speaks on this. It's just so great that I know that you guys know as well. But that why? Why, why is what Christ has done taken away that power? Look at verses 20 through 23. Paul says, Is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me, for me. Yet, I shall, uh, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. It, it, I mean, this is crazy talk when you think about it. I, I love John Piper who's, 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 who goes to this frequently in, 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 his, in, his, in his preaching. But when, when you think about just how crazy of a statement that is to say that it is, death is far better, that death is gain, because it goes against everything else, because you lose everything. I mean, you lose everything when you die. You lose your family, you lose your friends, you lose your, your hobbies, you lose your, your purpose in, as far as work or hobbies, whatever you're doing. You lose your, 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 you lose every, your house, your, your, everything you've been saving up for in your bank accounts. You lose everything, right? Huh? Everything, everything you know. And, and, and Paul says, and what is that? It's not loss, it's gain. It's gain. It is far better. Why? Because you gain Christ. You gain Christ. 
and, 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 he, and he says that, he, he talks about in, in Piper's statement, right? God is most glorified in you when you are more satisfied in him. He says, what else, what describes that more that when someone is facing death and says, gain? It says, gain. There's no other way to say that except that, 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 except that, that, that God is glorified through that because that person is, mo- is more satisfied in God than anything else. So death is no longer an active enemy. It's a toothless enemy. It's a conquered enemy. Death no longer condemns, no longer destroys. Death now gives us the ticket that gets us to Christ. And, so, and, then, and then we know that also that one, death, it's, one day death itself will be finally destroyed. And we won't turn there. Revelation chapter 20. So, Death is the enemy yeah. that's going to be conquered. Yeah. But death was the punishment for sin. Yeah. By yeah. Saying, by God. And, so, and so then God takes the power of death away and <laughs> makes death into the tool that brings us to him. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just, you see God's good redemption purposes. Yeah. So, so here's the implication that we do grieve over death, but we don't grieve without hope. We, we won't have time to turn there, but if you, if you want to look more, look at 1 Thessalonians 4, where we see that the Thessalonians were grieving over those who had fallen asleep, Christians who had died. And he, he, Paul doesn't say, don't grieve. He doesn't say that. But he says, we don't grieve like the culture. We don't grieve like the Greco-Roman culture who's pessimistic about death. We, grie- we don't grieve like that. We grieve, but we grieve as those with hope. We don't grieve as like those without hope. We grieve with hope because there's a guarantee of our resurrection to be with the Lord. So, <clears throat> so let's just tie things together here in, in just the last few minutes. Three considerations. Consideration of our own death, consideration of death of Christian loved ones, and consideration of non-Christians. First of all, consideration of our own death. We see that, that if we are in Christ, if you placed your faith in Christ, that the death is gained that we have no fear. That we read earlier, to be absent with the body is to be home with the Lord. That, that we know that that's a guarantee, Romans 8, because nothing can separate us from the love of God. The guarantee is not in me. The guarantee is in Christ's work. Is Christ's work enough? Yes. And so we're in Christ's love. And turn one, to one more passage. Turn to Hebrews real quick there. Hebrews chapter 2. Here's an important passage, I think, that Christ has not just died to deliver us from death itself, but look at Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So it's not just death itself, but he's, he's, he's delivering us from the fear of death, right? So it's not just us as Christians can say, yeah, I know I'm going to be with Christ, and, but I still have to cling on my, you know, I, just, I, still, I still have to be afraid. No, he's not just delivered us from death, but from the fear of death itself. And so that, that um, and, and that's, that's part of Christ's gift. It's part of our guarantee in Christ and part of our witness to the world. Second of all, a consideration of the death of Christian friends and loved ones. We, we've saw this before. We want to hold on to two things. The death is an enemy. It is right to weep. It is right to grieve. It is, it is right to mourn. Those are right reactions. That's, that's how Jesus reacted. That's how, how the, the Christians of the New Testament reacted. That's how we should react. The, 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 there's no reason to have to try to put on a happy face that the death is an enemy, but we don't grieve as those without hope. We, we, death is a defeated enemy. So we want to hold on to both of those things. Finally, one last thing, consideration of death of unbelievers. Here's one more balance is that we, we want to understand in humility, we don't know someone's heart at the point of their death. 
And I think there's an important balance we want to keep there. <clears throat> and we're not going to turn because of time, but let me give you two scriptures. One is Matthew 7, where Jesus says that uh, the, way to he- the, the, the way to heaven is narrow, right? And, and the path to, um, to hell is, is broad. He says the way to heaven is narrow and there are few who find it. There is no other way except Christ. We don't want to just think that, oh, you know what? Everyone's just going to kind of make it in the end. But in the same point, we want to understand that we don't understand where people's hearts are always at the end. We just don't. And, and I, I'm humbled when I look at Hebrews 11, this, this hall of faith, these examples of faith, clearly from the context of Hebrews, saving faith. And you look at Hebrews 11:32, and Gideon and Samson are there. And I've said before, they would not have made my list. If, were, if I, from not knowing the heart, just looking from the externals, Gideon and Samson would not be there. If I were the judge of all the earth, which I thank goodness I'm not, they just wouldn't be there, right? Samson was an unrepentant sinner his entire life. Maybe, I'm like, maybe you see a little repentance at the end, but it looks more like vengeance, right? Didn't he say like, God, let me take vengeance on my enemies? My yeah, like this does not look like an unrepent or a repentant person. This does not look like a saved person. This looks like someone who's just selfish his entire life and died as a selfish man. And he's in Hebrews 11 because God saw his heart. And clearly the Holy Spirit through, through the author of Hebrews you know, understood that there, was, that there was something that was regenerate. There was something that was, was saved, that Samson was saved. The op- so maybe, maybe he did finally have faith at the end. I don't know. But obviously he, he did end well some, in a way that he had faith. Gideon. Gideon is the perfect example of the apostate. Started good, ended as an idolater. Right? And, and I mean, he, again, if you, if you knew someone and they were, they, they, they were loving the Lord and they just abandoned the Lord and they're worshiping all kinds of other, other, other things and then they die, you go, oh, man, they just must never, never been saved in the first place. Maybe. That is possible. I think there's lots of examples. You notice that Saul is not on that list. I think Saul is probably an example of an apostate. But Gideon clearly was not because Gideon's there. Gideon didn't look like it. And from an external point of view, he didn't look like he should be there, but God knows the heart and clearly. And so we, don't, we, wanna, we, we, wanna, we wanna have that balance of we just don't know the heart. Um, there's a good maxim that's been given to pastors, in, in, in a, at least in my seminary, and I know a lot of others, is that when you do funerals and, and there's, there's just not a clear testimony and not a clear evidence, you don't wanna preach someone into heaven and you, preach, you don't wanna preach them out. And I think that's a good maxim for our own hearts is that we don't wanna, we don't wanna judge someone into heaven, we don't wanna judge them out. That, that we just don't know the heart. Um, as long as they have life and breath, we want to make sure they know the gospel and call them to repentance. And, 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 but ultimately, what the final verdict is, that we just don't know the heart. And so, um, second, we want to see that whatever the state of their soul, we can be thankful for how God used them. We see that with David and Saul. Clearly, Saul was, was, was hostile towards David. So clearly, Saul was living the life of an unbeliever. Saul is not in Hebrews 11. I think that it's pretty evident that Saul was probably not, not a believer. But we see that David, in this eulogy for Saul and for Jonathan, but Saul specifically, he speaks in glowing terms and thankful for the good things that he could be thankful for in Saul's life. And so, so there are a couple of things as we think about unbelievers. Um, what we're going to be going to next in the next couple of weeks is Elias is going to start talking then about the intermediate state. And I want to just prep one thing and saying, that's a tough subject. Um, and, and, and I know Elias is up for it. That's why I asked him if he wanted to do it. But it's one of the subjects that the Bible is just... There are certain truths we know and there's certain things the Bible just says, I'm not going to tell you. And so the God has decided, said, here's the things you need to know and here's things that you want to know and I'm just not telling you. 
And so there's some different ways that we're having to put this together theologically, and so Elias is going to work through that. But the intermediate state in the idea of where do we go when we die? We know we go to be with the Lord, but what is that like? Because all of our descriptions of heaven is the new heavens and new earth to come. But we're not going to be in the new heavens and new earth yet until Christ returns. So what is this intermediate state in between uh, before the new heavens and new earth come, and how do we think about that? So that's where we're going in the next few weeks. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll head into the worship service. Father, we thank you that you're a God that's worthy of our worship. Lord, because of your work through your son, Jesus Christ. And we glory in that, that he removed, Lord, that he defeated the enemy of death and of sin, removed that enemy from, our, from us that we don't have to face the curse of death, that we don't have to face the fear of death. In fact, that death is used by you for our good. It's used for our good, Lord, to bring us into what is far better. And so we give you thanks for that. Help us be grounded in that. Help us to be light to a world that needs that kind of hope in the face of the inevitability of death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.